It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, joined by the second most handsome doctor in North America and the king of dad noises, Dr. Austin Baraki. What's going on, man? Am I really? I've been bestowed that award. <laughs> Look, man, every time I edit these podcasts and I'm doing the intro, and I don't know, it may just be me, like you seeing my face or like hearing my voice. It's just a long... <sighs> sigh that I have to edit out and it's just it's a thing so yeah king of dad noises doctor dad noises maybe that could be your yeah that's, All right, that's your, I'll take what I can get yep uh, in any case this is episode 190 this is our science research review for August 2022 we're going to talk about everything from weight stigma to rate of adaptations or rate of gains to creatine we got everything on in this podcast the whole whole gamut so uh, before we get into that you just uh, made me aware of this I guess it was yesterday. There was a European Society of Cardiology meeting this past weekend. Yeah, it was, I mean, it's a huge conference, and and the only reason I brought it up is just because there were numerous, like, very substantial practice changing research uh, papers that were presented that are uh, that I expect will be making some pretty significant impact in the practice of medicine and cardiology and things like that. A, a lot of it is not necessarily, you know, in the scope of of what we typically talk about on the podcast, but some of it you know, may ultimately trickle through to, to people, uh, uh, depending on what kind of health conditions or heart conditions they may be dealing with. It certainly is going to impact a lot of the things that I do. Uh, I went through that thread and then and ended up at a bunch of different studies. And, and it, the cool part was a lot of the visual aids that they used may, were very, very, uh, I guess, user-friendly, um, you know, particularly like, here's the study, here's what we did, here's the practice change and impact, et cetera. thought that was really nice. But here's my, here's my gripe. All right, because I'm really good at complaining. I always find something to complain about. The traffic that this stuff is getting is much, much lower than stuff like non-nutritive sweeteners are bad from, you know, a non-expert in this sort of space. Um, and I guess that shouldn't be surprising to me, but it's like every time I see something like that, I'm like, man, this, co this, this conference really pumped out a lot of cool stuff. And like, I wish this was getting more bandwidth. And how do we like elevate this and platform this stuff? And it's like, all right, we even got graphics. We got graphics. We got people with the blue check marks tweeting this stuff. Like, how do you, you know, how do we, how do we make this a little bit wider spread? And um, yeah, I don't know. You got to make, you got to make it sexy, I guess. So we'll, uh, we'll sexify some of this stuff and, and bring it to you guys in <laughs> podcast form. Maybe you won't be a part of that. <laughs> I mean, I mean, yeah, it's like, we look at how some of the, uh, some of the folks out there, influencer types try to make things sexy and a lot of times that ends up being by blowing things out of proportion or extrapolating it inappropriately or you know hyping up things that don't deserve the amount of hype that they're giving them and that's kind of just you know clickbait is ultimately or and and although to your point like there's even data on this as far as like actual click-through rates on things like you know scientific research is being getting shared all over the place on twitter for example it's very active you know, research and clinical communities. That's a lot of where I stay up to date is, is uh, keeping track of stuff there, but actual click through rates on some of the, on many of these things have been studied and they're quite poor. And it's like, people will tend to click through maybe if it's something that they, you know, strongly disagree with, or if they maybe, maybe strongly agree with. Um, but otherwise like, you know, most people, and, and this is just typical in general is, is, is not actually going through and reading the sources and, you know, assessing the sources and, and things like that. Cause that's just hard work and it's complicated. And I understand people aren't going to yeah. do that. <laughs> yeah. The, the drop off rate. Yeah. From like, okay, this, the link to the abstract was shared. Like, okay, many, the, the people inter interacting and interfacing with that tweet are relatively high. And then the link, the clicks on the actual abstract itself, much, much lower. And then access of the full text, much, 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 much lower still. And then the citations of that, you know, in the future tend to, tend to go down. The biggest issue that I see is, is the, when people will just read the abstract and then make some sort of interpretation. I'm like, why you do this? You know, yeah. this is bad. <laughs> <laughs> I, I haven't, um, you know, delved too much into the details of this, but I did see some news recently within the past week, I guess, from the government that they're going to be requiring federally funded research to be basically open to access. To be free. Yeah, um, that'd be cool. Which is a big deal. It, yeah. So that's that's nice because it doesn't make sense for a ton of federally funded research to be put up behind a giant paywall um, from these from these publishers that are not awesome. But uh, 
anyway, that's a whole side thing. <laughs> Elsevier has entered the chat. No. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> any, in any case, yes, we'll be bringing you some info on that and some new guidelines that have recently come out. Um, also, we got a new article on the website. You and I collabed. This is probably the first time we've collaborated on an actual article for the website in a in a minute. It's been a while. Yeah. Yeah. We got the got the crew back together. So this is on progressive loading and actually one of the articles uh, that we're reviewing in this month's uh, research review in this week's podcast has to do with exactly that. So we'll get more in, in into it. But if you haven't read our article on progressive loading, it's linked in the description below. It's a pretty good one. It's uh, about, you know, how you should choose the weight on the bar and and the implications that may have for your your training. Uh, and then as always, I got to plug our app and our apparel. So if you're looking to uh, access all the latest Marvel Medicine content, if you're looking to access any training templates, free stuff, it's all on the app. It's available for free in the uh, Apple App Store. Just search Barbell Medicine. You can download it for free. If you're curious, like, what template should I run? What kind of exercise program should I run? We've got free tools uh, for that. So just check that out. And then our apparel, we're almost sold out of all of our stuff. But, you know, if you're trying to rep Barbell Medicine, um, you like any of our designs, you want to support the brand, uh, yep, you can get some of uh, the apparel that we still have left. Uh, we'll make it another drop here in about three weeks, I think. So yeah, you can uh, get our limited edition stuff over on the website. Just go there and search apparel and uh, get your get your gear today. All right, let's pop in to this week's podcast. Again, this is episode 190, the research review. I'm here with Dr. Austin Baraki. We're going to start off with the paper published in Population Health this year. It's by Pavela et al. The title of the paper is called The Associations Between Relative and Absolute Body Mass Index with Mortality Rate Based on Predictions from Stigma Theory. Wow. Just like, wow. Okay. So Austin, this you you brought this paper uh, to the table. So just give us a background. Like, what is this paper about? Yeah, this one, I, f I forget exactly how this came to my attention, but I found it to be an interesting uh, concept, an interesting, uh, and, and an interesting way that they went about studying it. Um, as with all studies, there are a bunch of, you know, limitations and things like that with respect to how they went about this and, and the results, but it does, uh, it should spur some some thinking on this topic, which is, I think, why I found it interesting. So, you know, it, it's not uh, news to probably most of the folks listening to the podcast that rates of obesity are continuing to increase uh, from around like the 1998-1999 timeframe until up until you know more recently, say 2018 to 2020 data, rates of obesity, again, this is as using typical BMI cutoffs for the diagnosis, um, have increased from around 30% back then to around 42% most recently. And uh, so these rates are continuing to increase. And rates of quote unquote severe obesity, which again, terminology around this has changed, but this is like where BMI is over 40, um, have doubled from 4.7 to 9.2% commensurate with this, rates of diabetes and other uh, uh, health complications relating to excess body fat have been increasing as well. So diabetes is now up around 15% or so of the population, which is substantial. This also ties in with medical costs increasing in 2019, uh, costs attributable to um, to obesity and complications were estimated around $170 billion, which is a substantial amount. Um, did you have something you were going to add there? Yeah, I just because people are automatically, as soon as you said body mass index or BMI, like then that's how they're you know, quantifying this, you know, the amount of individuals with obesity, people are like, well, BMI is terrible screen. And to that, and I kind of agree, but not for the exact, it's for the exact opposite reason that most people are listening to this think. It's not because it identifies folks who aren't carrying too much body fat uh, too frequently, right? It like it over, <laughs> over predicts, rather it under predicts. It misses a substantial portion of the population who's carrying too much body fat, but whose BMI isn't actually, uh, in this case, over 30 uh, so if any, in any case, this, these numbers are underrepresentative of the amount of people who are carrying too much body fat. Um, and, and so when people are like, BMI sucks as a screening tool, I'm like, well, yeah, you can make that argument, you know, by itself, uh, but not because it's overdiagnosing, but rather because it's underdiagnosing. And just, if you, if you don't want to go through all the research and, and look up all the studies, you can just think about it like this. How many people are walking around? that are just super jacked and super lean and therefore would have a BMI greater than 30, but not being carrying too much body fat. It's just not a lot of people, not a lot of people. And, and some people say, well, look at you, Feigenbaum, your, your BMI has got to be close to it. I'm like, yeah, it's 29. So I'm not over 30. But even if I was, it's like, how many people are like me? Uh, fortunately for everyone, 
not that many. <laughs> so in any case, I, I think if you, if we had a better screening tool, like if you had BMI and waist circumference data, for example, on like a really, very large representative uh, 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 cohort of the population, we'd probably see close to half. That, that would be my, my guesstimate, but um, I haven't looked at uh, newer data from, I think last time I checked this out was like three or four years ago just to see. And yeah, it tends to under predict. Okay. So in any case, we have a rise in individuals with excess adiposity or obesity. Uh, it costs a lot of money. Okay. We're all on board here. What's the deal with weight stigma here? So like, what is that? And then how are they, ev- you know, using that in this study? Yeah, it's been pretty clearly established at this point that there are wide differences both in terms of ethnicity, socioeconomic status, a bunch of different variables in terms of obesity affecting these subpopulations differently. And and so part of the question is why does this happen? And of course, there, everything is complicated, bottom line. There's a lot of reasons for it. But uh, this concept of weight stigma is the idea that an individual might be, be discredited, devalued, otherwise discriminated on uh, upon based on their weight. Um, I read some so some of the uh, the lines in this paper were striking. So one of them, they said that it's a situation where obesity, quote, disqualifies them from full social acceptance. Um, I found that kind of phrasing interesting. It, it leads people uh, with obesity to be perceived as, quote, socially deviant and morally responsible for their weight status. So there's a lot of heavy, <laughs> you know, uh, philosophical, ethical, you know, and, and other kind of uh, social uh, um, issues around this. And, and lots of things that we've talked about on previous podcasts around the topic of obesity and to what extent people are, quote, unquote, you know, at fault for, for this, which we won't necessarily get into again here. Um, But surveys, uh, survey data across numerous populations, we're going to be mainly focused on the US here, um, have really quite consistently shown, you know, substantial negative stereotyping, um, people's uh, social common social beliefs that people with obesity are generally inactive, they lack self control. And this has been found to relate to discrimination across numerous settings, be it, you know, with respect to jobs, educational, uh, advancement and uh, in even in individual relationships, personal relationships and things like that. And so these data, go ahead, sorry. Yeah. So I, I like, I know that there, for example, there's data that individuals with obesity tend to get paid less or get high and get hired less and tend to have less opportunities with respect to education and all sorts of things. The, the interesting thing, and I, I think you're going to get into this uh, and, and if not, I, it definitely correlates. Um, there's been this push, particularly from um, the community's, I, you know, really pushing the idea that weight stigma is harmful and which, to which, you know, we, we generally agree that th- these individuals with, with obesity get substandard medical care or different medical care because of this, uh, stigma. Like what's, do you see that happening quite often? Do they find that that happened and, and like, how do they identify it? Uh, yes, they definitely get substandard and different different levels of, of medical care. And this is something that um, I would say that I'm, I'm less familiar with the research evidence on and more familiar just from working in clinical practice and seeing how other clinicians talk about, think about, discuss, um, and interact with patients, uh, patients who, who have obesity and, and other obesity-related complications. Um, just in terms of the language used, uh, you know, conversations behind the scenes, not necessarily at the bedside, can, can often be inconsiderate and, and otherwise stigmatizing and, and not awesome. And so that's something that definitely, like, when I'm working with my teams and things like that, I definitely, if I see a, a sense of that arising, particularly in early, you know, medical trainees and students, I try to nip that pretty early and draw their attention to it um, so that they become more conscious of it moving forward and, and rather than rather than perpetuate the issue. But definitely very widespread, very common uh, across a number of, of settings in my specialty in particular, because I think in internal medicine, we probably see uh, most of the complications of, of obesity and excess adiposity that from a medical standpoint, um, as well as from a you know mental health psychiatric standpoint as well. So um, there's, there's tons of data showing st- pretty clear associations between discrimination and adverse health outcomes. This could relate to cardiovascular risk, psychological distress, depression, anxiety, and, and even mortality. And so these are all, again, associations in, in these data. So I, I, I'm not trying to draw a direct causal line here. Um, but the association between weight-related discrimination and poor outcomes seems to be higher than discrimination um, based on other variables, be it race, sex, age, things like that. These are these are data that are cited in the in the paper as well. And so, ultimately, this stigma has you know it, it it's obviously not great, 
and there has been almost a reactionary movement. This idea of fat acceptance, as you have, uh, as as you mentioned, um, and and there's uh, I think a spectrum within this movement in terms of what their counter arguments are. And one of the more extreme of them that that we've seen and, and interacted with uh, periodically at certain points is this idea that excess body fat, adiposity, obesity, whatever term you want to want to call it, um, does not actually itself impact health outcomes. That it does that it is not intrinsically harmful, and rather that all of the negative consequences that are observed, um, or or even an argument could be that a substantial portion or a, or a large portion or a majority of the negative health consequences observed are more so related to this sort of stigma and the downstream consequences from a from a social standpoint, and less so due to biological you know complications of the excess body fat and, and obesity. Is that something right. that a position that you've interacted with before? Yeah, I think people listen to this if they're familiar with the the haze, the health at any at every size sort of movement. That yeah, on an extreme end of that, it's it's basically suggesting that you know the excess adiposity itself is not causal um, to these poor outcomes that we see with individuals with obesity, but rather the, the discrimination and, and basically at every step along the way that it impacts their life, whether it's from their social interactions, from their uh, interactions with health professionals. You know, every single point, um, effectively, the, the 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 stigma, the weight stigma, has negatively affected their life, and that's the causal. Uh, uh, the smoking gun, if you will, behind their negative outcomes, and and the contrasting view is more that look the we you know that can be true, but the sort of excess adiposity itself causes issues uh, mechanically, both just carry it carrying too much mass for in the example of like uh, some uh, elements of osteoarthritis, for example. There's endocrine related effects due to the uh, inflammatory adipokines or hormones released from adipose tissue itself that can be causal in many etiologies, many, many uh, medical conditions. And then also like metabolic effects of carrying excess adipose tissue. And so we're not saying that it's either or, you know, both things can be true. Um, And so, yeah, in general, I think having a polarized view here is probably not the stance that we would take, but I've definitely interacted with with some of the more extreme sort of proponents of this health at every size. And so, yeah, this is an interesting paper because it kind of addresses that for the first time that I've seen, you know, like, okay, here's the claim, let's investigate it. Yeah. So, so the reason this paper got my attention is just kind of because of the interesting strategy that they use to, to study it. And it is not the first that has looked into this. Um, they, they, it, there is a discussion uh, of some of the other areas of research uh, um, on this topic, but basically they use this unique strategy. They tested whether a high BMI relative to one's age, sex, and racial or ethnic group was associated with a higher risk of mortality or death. And, that, and, they, and they studied that independently from your absolute BMI number. So in other words, um, we can measure your height and your weight, and we can calculate a BMI. And, and, and that has been done many, many, many times over uh, 100 years. Um, and, and we have this association, um, you know, typically it's described as this kind of J-shaped curve where risk of death or bad health outcomes increases at very, very low ends of BMI for various reasons, because people who are chronically ill, have cancer, whatever the case is, unintentional weight loss um, can be very, very, very thin. And then there's this kind of sweet spot where that sweet spot is, is, is debated, uh, but typically around like the 25, 26 kind of range a lot of the time. And then beyond that risk appears to increase uh, um, at higher and higher levels into the range of quote unquote obesity over 30 and severe obesity over 40, et cetera. So that's the absolute BMI. That's just straight up height, weight calculation, not accounting for anything else, um, which is again, a conversation that we've had in other, uh, um, you know, on, on other podcasts about the limitations of that and, and things like that. But on a population level has some, some utility and, and quite consistent and very large evidence base. What they're doing here is met, is is kind of uh, uh, adjusting or or calculating BMI relative to certain other uh, uh, characteristics, in particular sex, race, racial, ethnic group, and your birth cohort. Um, and the thinking is that um, an individual's perception of the appropriateness of their weight and others depends on social context. So, so social norms, um, around, you know, body image, body size, and, and it's kind of significance 
all of that can be influenced by the the social context and and who's around you and these kind of social cultural beliefs. Um, and so that the simple way to phrase it can be from this line from the paper, one's body size relative to a peer group thus shapes perceptions about the appropriateness of one's weight and how others perceive the appropriateness of our weight. There are tons of other, you know, social cultural norms and preferences, whether it be towards thinness, and this is more prevalent in certain, you know, demographics and ethnic groups versus quote unquote curviness in, in other, you know, socioeconomic groups and things like that. And, and this is all super variable. And so the idea is that if we can look at people's BMI through this kind of additional lens, um, you know, through the lens of your social cohort, be it you know, again, age, birth cohort, sex, uh, and racial ethnic group, we may see a difference in, in terms of impact such that if you're, quote, you know, this relative BMI, if, if it's much higher um, than that of your cohort of, of this kind of sub-demographic, um, then because you may perceive that social norm and, and yourself being well outside of that, that may be contributory towards some of this stigma, and that may result in a higher risk of complications. And, and the, they're using, I guess, the hardest outcome here being, being mortality or death. Yeah, it's like trying to quantify almost just, okay, what is the weight stigma effect, if any? Right, exactly. And, and comparing that with, is there an, is that effect independent of, you know, the F, any effect of, of absolute BMI, just straight height, weight kind of number. Um, and so they have, they described some of the other, uh, you know, research papers that have, that have done this and, and they've, some of them have done it in different ways, meaning that they have chosen to kind of stratify this using somewhat different variables. So some use this age, sex, ethnic group. Some of the data additionally, you know, stratify it by like the county of residence that you're in, thinking that like maybe just in your immediate local area, there may be certain trends, certain beliefs, things like that. And so as a result, this field is young uh, and and uh, complicated, and there's some data pointing in, in different directions. But this is just kind of uh, an interesting approach to the question of like, how can we try to tease apart uh, impacts of stigma? One way would be purely subjective, just straight up asking people, you know, do you feel stigmatized about this? Um, have you ever experienced weight-related stigma? Things like that. There are some pros to that uh, because people may report, yes, yes, yes. There are some downsides to that because it may kind of plant that seed and and it may actually bias people by asking them that very question, the way that you frame it. And so then there's this other side, which is kind of a bit more objective, uh, relying on these kind of height weight data and adjusting for these more objective factors, be it your age, your birth cohort, uh, um, and uh, and self state, uh, you know, uh, reported race, ethnicity on these kind of large population wide surveys um, that are done. Uh, and so ultimately, they're trying to test this hypothesis, whether a positive deviation from the mean in your reference group, this is, you know, would be a high relative BMI, does that incur the deleterious consequences of obesity's stigmatization, um, and thereby become related with uh, an increased risk of mortality or death? And is that independent from the, from the relationship of absolute BMI and death? Meaning, is there a difference between relative in your demographic versus the absolute effects that would be predicted from your height, weight, calculated absolute BMI alone? I feel like I've, I've made that clear enough. I've tried to explain it because it's kind of complicated. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the idea would be that if there was no stigma or effective stigma, then the, uh, basically there would be no difference between your relative BMI and your absolute BMI. And if there was a substantial impact, well, then the difference that you found there would be quote unquote, the weight stigma effect. Um, and then you could almost quantify that in a way say, Oh, huge effect or small effect or medium size effect. And in any case, they used a ton of data here. Like you got yeah. <laughs> hundreds of thousands of people here. So yeah, where do they get this data from and what do they find? Yeah, so there's numerous large nationally representative uh, data sets that are out there that can be used for this kind of data mining and, and analysis. So the NHANES data set, HRS and NHIS, which again, to the listeners, is not going to be super meaningful unless you dig into the, dig into the paper. But ultimately, they pulled data and ended up with uh, over 600,000 subjects um, that they kind of analyzed this data on. They pulled data on BMI, sex, age, race, educational attainment, smoking, and then ultimately their rate of death. And this was over the course of about a 10-year follow up period um, in this large, large cohort. It's important to note that they did not pay attention to variables like blood pressure, blood cholesterol levels, blood sugar, things like that. And this is an important concept because we've talked about this before in, um, in our cholesterol podcast, where there are situations where a study might look at the uh, correlation between saturated fat intake in the diet and like heart disease death, but they might adjust or correct that data for blood cholesterol. 
And so that is an issue called over-adjustment, where if there is a causal link between the two, but you then adjust for the very factor that drives that relationship, then you are effectively erasing the effect that you're looking for. And so in this paper, they did not look look at or adjust for things like blood pressure, lipids, cholesterol, glucose, because those are thought to lie on this causal pathway of excess body fat and risk of death. And so if you corrected for those things, then you'd just be erasing the effect of obesity. So that's worth worth pointing out because I can see some folks asking like, well, did they even pay attention to blood pressure and blood sugar and diabetes? It's like, well, if you corrected for that, you just erase the entire point of your study. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So when they when they figured out this relative BMI value for all the subjects, they stratified it across six different age strata, six 10-year 10, 10 increments, so less than 30, over 70, and then every 10-year increment in between. Uh, the two you know, uh, binary sex strata, as reported on these nationally representative surveys, four race strata, so Hispanic, non-Hispanic, white, black, or other. And this led to, obviously, a bunch of different reference groups, um, depending on where people fell. And so... The average age of subjects ranged from 47 to 60 across the three studies. The average BMI was around 28 or so. And again, survival time was around nine years on average. And so I think that the follow-up period overall was more or less around 10 years or so, which is a a decent follow-up period, particularly when you have 600,000 subjects that you're looking at. And so there was, I will admit, some fancy statistical analysis done on on some of these things. Um, And we are admittedly not statisticians. But ultimately, what they they reported was that when they plotted these things out, comparing, again, relative BMI's association with mortality rate or risk of death versus the absolute BMI's relationship with risk of death from the NHANES cohort, there was not a clear relation, no significant relationship between relative BMI and mortality rate, meaning that as your relative BMI increased, as your BMI increased beyond that of your reference group, age, sex, uh, and and, uh, racial or ethnic uh, cohort, um, it did not result in a higher uh, than expected kind of mortality rate or risk of death. This was the same in the HRS data set. And then in, in the third data set, they, div- they divided it into 10 different, uh, what are called deciles, tenths all the way. And there was a very odd pattern where, you know, on the way up from the first decile, uh, mortality rate actually tended to decrease. And then from the fifth to the tenth, there wasn't actually any increase in, in mortality. And so what they ended up reporting from this was contrary to our hypothesis, that higher relative BMI would be associated with a higher rate, rate of mortality or death, a higher relative BMI was not associated with an increased mortality rate. So ultimately, it went you know, in the opposite direction, if anything. Overall, pretty tough to make the case that this uh, kind of corrected a relative BMI was clearly explanatory of higher rates of death in these populations. Whereas absolute BMI, the height weight calculated, remained a strong predictor of overall death, um, both above and below the apparent optimum that are that are kind of commonly cited right around on average that 25 range. Again, some drift a little higher, some drift a little lower, depending on the data set. Uh, but that remained predictive, even though the relative mortality did not. And as I mentioned earlier, there's some other research in this that basically part of the reason this is complicated is because the results you get may be impacted by what variables you choose to stratify for. So is it age, sex, you know, race, ethnic group? Do you add on additional ones? And so some other ones that are discussed in the paper say like, hey, when we stratified by also like county of residence, that actually found some more significant impacts. Ultimately, this is a lot of like complex methodological discussion that, that I don't know that I can like clearly distill down into, into a take home for people. Ultimately, I found this paper interesting in general, the approach to the question was interesting in terms of, as I said, comparing like on one hand, you could just like ask people, but there are downsides to that too. Here we're doing more, more objective measures, which has some pros also has some downsides. Um, and, and ultimately did not really find a clear impact of this relative BMI or relationship between this relative BMI and, and risk of death. This, these results don't suggest that weight stigma is not real. They don't suggest that it doesn't exist or that it doesn't impact health outcomes. Again, because we're just looking at like death here, right? Um, but it does kind of challenge the, the, that more extreme claim that we discussed earlier that body fatness has no intrinsic health impact on health outcomes and that all the negative impacts uh, that we see are just due to stigma alone. I think that bottom line is we should still be working to mitigate or, you know, to whatever extent it's even possible, eliminate weight stigma in practice and, and socially, 
have a more compassionate approach, offering the best medical care, offering evidence-based treatments, and, and letting people make these decisions for themselves, whether to accept or, or decline or however they want to, to go about things to, to get better outcomes. Um, but I think that, again, as you mentioned earlier, we continue to fall on the side of like, yeah, there's some real, you know, consistent clear, both mechanistically plausible and, you know, evidence-based reasons to believe that there is actual biological harm that will be driven by accumulation and maintenance of higher, you know, higher levels of body fat. Um, Stigma absolutely can impact health outcomes, but um, the health outcomes that we see are not entirely explained by, by stigma. Yeah. I mean, I think my take home is why or when you can and. You know, <laughs> yet again, I, and I don't mean to make light of this. the The stigma thing is is very real, and you know, when we talk about why it's important to maybe medicalize uh, and 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 turn obesity uh, the way we interpret it in, into more of a disease process rather than like you know a moral failing or, or or something like that, is because yeah, then we would help in destigmatizing this, just like we don't stigmatize folks. Um, who develop an autoimmune disease. It's not like, oh, it's your fault that you developed this autoimmune disease. It, you know, it, one of those unlucky breaks. And so it, let's treat it based on evidence, uh, based treatment, treatment, uh, protocols. And, and so we definitely want to reduce weight stigma. We want people to be able to access high level care. Um, but to, I guess, ascribe all of the effects of carrying excess body fat to just the stigma doesn't seem to have a really robust research, you know, basis at this point. If we find out later on that, yeah, you know, this particular study method did not elucidate the things that we're trying to figure out and and we find out that to be a, a, a major thing, then we got to go back to the drawing board and, and figure out ways to reduce stigma. But as of now, it's like, yeah, let's do, let's do both. Let's try to destigmatize this as much as we can based on, um, what we can do in the community, um, education wise, messaging wise, using the correct verbiage, you know, and being respectful. And then let's also treat the under, you know, these underlying, um, pathologies that we know exist too. You know, like I said, the metabolic effects of carrying too much uh, body fat, the endocrine effects of carrying too much body fat, mechanical effects, we can, we can address all of it. So again, why, or when you can hand. <laughs> We gotta have to put it on a t-shirt. Line. Yeah, yeah, they're gonna, they're gonna do it. Cool. All right, I like that study. That was cool. Thank you for bringing that. Um, the next study is actually is it's on a the same topic. We're still talking about um, obesity and and but this is more of a management paper. So like obesity, what do? Uh, this paper was published in the August twenty. 20- 22 uh, edition of Nature Communications by Jensen et al. They're from Denmark. The paper is titled Exploratory Analysis of Eating and Physical Activity-Related Outcomes from a Randomized Controlled Trial for Weight Loss Maintenance with Exercise and Liraglutide Single or Combination Treatment. So basically, this study took uh, uh, about 130 people and they put them on a very low-calorie diet. They put them at 800 calories a day. They did that for eight weeks. They all lost weight. And then afterwards, they randomized them into one of four groups. One group just got the loraglutide. Another group just exercised. Uh, A third group got the medication and exercised. And then the fourth group did not exercise and they just got a placebo. And they basically try to see like, hey, what was the effect of each intervention on weight regain? You know, because that's a really uh, common thing that happens after weight loss. And so I think to start this off, this can be just a brief review, Austin, like what is liraglutide and what does do those type of medications do with respect to weight loss? Yeah. So these are medicines that we're having increasing experience with, um, both in the context of uh, diabetes, where they were originally studied and approved, and, and more recently, obesity as well. So it falls into a class called GLP-1 receptor agonists or glucagon-like peptide 1 receptor agonists. And, and this is um, basically hitting a receptor um, that is targeted by hormones that are, that are made in our gut already. And we're giving them kind of in, in higher doses and in pharmacological form. They're given as uh, um, injections typically uh, under the skin. There's, there's one oral form, but uh, typically we use injection forms of these medicines. And they hit a bunch of different targets throughout the body. Um, they help with blood sugar regulation. They impact the rate that our uh, stomach empties and, and kind of moves, moves food along in the, tr- in the GI tract. They can increase the release of insulin to handle the uh, effects of the meal as it is digested and absorbed. 
And then I think most interestingly and most importantly, it has some uh, effects in the brain as it relates to appetite and uh, uh, satiety, satiety meaning the sense of fullness that people have. So it can better regulate or, or, or influence um, appetite, hunger, and, and feelings of fullness. And ultimately, these medicines have all pretty much been shown to induce uh, uh, weight loss, some to greater extents than others, and, and depending on the dosage that you use and things like that. And so these are really at the forefront of modern uh, med medication treatment of obesity insofar as they affect this appetite and satiety kind of uh, system and, and eating behavior. You know, I, I was I was doing the thing that you're not supposed to do before bed the other night, which is doom scroll on Twitter. And uh, somebody was th there's been a recent uh, trial going on where they actually combined two different types of GLP one antagonists and saw like m much larger weight loss results than we see with just a single agent. So that's interesting. We'll see how that how that turns out. Uh, but somebody commented, they're like, I mean, why are we even doing this? It doesn't fit the fix the underlying cause of obesity. And I was like, what do you think the underlying cause is here? Because that 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 just that flippant response is like, oh, this is just simple. You know, you just you're just eating too much and, and exercising too little. So in our view, obesity is the preservation of energy balance in the presence of excess energy stores or body fat in this case. Normally, an increase in body fat or energy stores is met with a decrease in appetite, an increase in satiety or fullness, and an increase in energy expenditure to normalize body fat levels. In obesity, this feedback loop isn't really working as it should, and energy balance is maintained to support this excess energy storage. And so if there's a breakdown there, then what you would want a medication that was designed to treat the underlying cause here, you would want that to act at the level of the brain and signal folks to eat less so that they would not maintain those excess energy stores and then use them for fuel. And so when you look at what is the act, you know, what are the actions of this GLP-1 <laughs> agonist, that is the mechanism. Yeah. The alternative, they, if you wanted to fix anything else, is just fix the entire world and that's make exactly much less yeah. available. Hundred <laughs> percent. So I was like, I was like, either he, you know, he's making a case that these, you know, there's a huge environmental impact here, like input based on like food availability, uh, particularly energy dense, cheap, low satiety, low feelings of fullness foods. In which case, yeah, sure, just go, you know, fix the entire environment worldwide, <laughs> or doesn't understand that, you know, at the, at its core level, this preservation or maintenance of excess energy, uh, uh storage, uh, via, you know, uh, eating, eating enough to sustain those things is really the underlying, you know, kind of pathology here. Oh, okay. In any case, what do they do in the study? They took again, 130 people, 50 of them were, were uh, male, 80 of them were female. Average age was 45. Average BMI after the weight loss was 32. Um, prior to this one year, a long sort of weight regain observation. Um, they were on eight weeks of an 800 calorie per day diet, which is a very low calorie diet. The average weight loss there was a little over 13 kilos. Okay. So one group got the uh, medication liraglutide. Another group got exercise and liraglutide. The other group uh, just exercise only. And the fourth group just got a placebo. Um, they measured things like obviously with their weight, what happened to the weight regain over the following the, the next year. And then they use these different uh, instruments to gauge appetite. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't love these tools for appetite because they're all visual analog scales, which is basically just you point to a, a, a position on this graphic and you say, here's how hungry I am, uh, for example. And it's, you know, and then they measure the difference in distance between like different ratings. So like, oh, there was a three millimeter difference. And it's like, does that matter? Like, really? Like, it's, it's just like characterizing pain. So it is mm -hmm. a scale, but I don't know that it's a great scale. Um, they also use this, uh, these questionnaires, this three factor eating questionnaire R18, um, to, uh, figure out like what was their cognitive restraint with eating? How did that change during the one year follow-up period? Um, what was their emotional eating score? So how like, uh, uh, you know, emotional uh, inputs affected how much food they would eat. And then did they ever feel like they were uncontrolled? There's a whole nother uh, uh, assessment for that. They also wore accelerometers to see how much they were moving and if that changed over the following year. So in any case, uh, what happened? So again, before this intervention uh, and, and one year observation period, they lost uh, uh, over 13 kilos. And then at during the year uh, follow-up, the placebo group, so they weren't exercising. Uh, they just got this placebo liraglutide, regained about half, 6.1 kilos of weight. Um, those who exercised but did not get liraglutide, um, on average, only gained about 0.7 kilos. So they were more or less able to maintain their weight loss, which is uh, pretty good. Yeah. The weight loss with the liraglutide lost 
uh, or sorry, the uh, folks who just got uh, the loraglutide um, during the follow-up period lost an additional two kilos, which is great um, because again, these folks all had BMIs greater than 30 still. So if you got additional weight loss, that would probably portend better health outcomes. And then the, the, those who exercised and got the loraglutide, that got the combo treatment, lost another six kilos in the following year, which is... So they're approaching yeah. 20 kilos down overall from where they started. Yeah. And compared to those who uh, didn't do anything, so just the placebo group. And, and those folks got regu- regular, regularly scheduled visits with nutritionists um, in, in the Danish medical system. Not only did those folks gain six kilos, but the combo group lost an additional six kilos. So there's like a 12 kilo spread in outcomes there. Uh, As you might expect, the cognitive restraint, emotional eating, uncontrolled eating scores all improved on those groups with the medication, although they didn't get better in those who just exercised. So it's like you can't just exercise your way out of this, at least is what this data is suggesting. And there was more sedentary time um, in individuals getting the placebo. So even the folks who weren't exercising, but they were getting the loraglutide seemed to be more active uh, on the order of about a half an hour uh, per day. It's pretty interesting. So like the way I interpret this study is despite weight regain being common and multifactorial, so things like your uh, resting metabolic rate tends to go down, your uh, appetite tends to go up, your feelings of fullness tend to go down, all sorts of things happen. Um, Exercise by itself can be a strong sort of aid here. And so when people talk about exercise and weight loss, um, I typically reply, yeah, exercise is great for improving body composition, even if you don't lose any weight. But if you do lose weight, we tend to see more body fat loss and muscle mass gain. And uh, people tend to not regain as much weight if, uh, uh, if they're exercising. So exercise by itself, thumbs up, five stars, 10 out of 10, would recommend. Liraglutide, these GL, uh, GLP-1 agonists, also seems to be very, very powerful and prevent w- weight regain. In fact, they continue to lose weight over the following year. Um, so we know that in and of itself is likely good. Uh, and it does so by reducing that sort of increase in appetite that we see with weight loss. Um, so it kind of counteracts that effect. And if you combine the two, exercise and liraglutide, it's not just one plus one, you know, it's not add- just additive. It almost seems to be synergistic. You get an even bigger effect than you would predict. Mm-hmm. And so I'm very excited about these medications. The biggest problem I can see is, damn, these things cost a lot. Like <laughs> Exactly. They're pretty tough to, to get covered for patients who don't have diabetes or other complications. Insurance companies are not not interested in paying for that yet as an indication. It may take a bunch more time before maybe they've collected enough data to say, hey, if we treat this, we can prevent X number of cases of the development of diabetes and its complications, amputations, whatever the case is, heart failure, um, chronic kidney disease, all the other kind of downstream complications. It may take a while before like they are able to figure out exactly where all those costs are and, and, and how worthwhile it is for them to pay for these things. Hopefully we get there, or in the meantime, more of them will just become generic over time. Liraglutide may be getting there at some point in the next couple of years. I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah, we can hope. I mean, I think when people hear this, they're like, oh, this is just an easy way out. You just take the med, easy way out. And it's like, I, I mean, even if that were the case, isn't isn't it better to actually achieve the outcome that you're seeking rather than just keep banging your head against the wall? I mean, yeah, I, I, I don't know. People almost view that as like a like a, a shortcut, you know, and it's like yeah. rather than never getting to the where you're trying to go. Like, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I simply don't care how you view it because I care about the outcome. And so it's like we have such consistent and large bodies of evidence now at this point that on a large, you know, on a, on a, on a population wide scale, right? Certainly there are people who are able to lose a whole bunch of weight and sustain it. Cool. That's awesome for them. I'm, I'm happy for them on a population wide scale. Um, even the most intensive treatment regimens that we, that we have struggle to achieve clinically significant weight loss. Well, you know, it, over 5% approaching seven and a half, ten percent range and sustain it because biologically our bodies fight against us when we lose a substantial amount of weight. And so on that level, um, the most intensive interventions do not reliably get us to the, to the goal. Whereas I can, with one prescription, reliably get a, get you to the goal, improve health outcomes, prevent many of these uh, uh, downstream health complications, reduce cardiovascular risk, um, probably reduce mortality <laughs> as well. And so it's like, 
I don't really care whether you think it's where anybody thinks it's a shortcut or not, because um, a it's not. The data suggests that, uh, uh, for example, on I forget if it was liraglutide or semaglutide, there was a study that basically said uh, that looked at uh, self-efficacy ratings. So patients who were on these medicines had substantially higher self-efficacy. Suddenly, they felt more in control of their ability to adhere to a diet and to an exercise plan and things like that, which is the way these things work. and, and, and you even mentioned this in the study here, the placebo group uh, was more sedentary. If this was just a simple shortcut, the patients who were on the liraglutide, you might see, oh, they just took the medicine and then they sat on the couch all day and then they lost weight. And it's like, hey, I still wouldn't care if it got us to the outcome and improved outcomes and things like that, right? If it got us to the goal and they had you know less weight and less health-related complications, I still wouldn't care. But that's not what we see. We see that they're actually more active compared to the placebo group anyway. So what, is, what remaining counter-arguments are there? Okay. <laughs> Unless you want to change the whole world again, the the food environment, which good luck. <laughs> yeah, good luck. Yeah, yeah. It just seems like it's it's really addressing the the underlying causes of of obesity at multiple different levels. Whether that be kind of the short circuiting, maybe that's a, that's uh, accrued between appetite, satiety, and then and energy stores. So again, if we agree that obesity, uh, the the main problem is this preservation of excess body fat. Um, by, you know, eating in a calorie balance that sustains that, that energy excess, you know, if, if, if that's due to this appetite satiety, you know, short circuit, well, these GLP one agonists obviously solve that. And they also seem to, um, counteract any unwanted effects of weight loss, which would be reduced physical activity, for example, uh, reduced uh, metabolism or metabolic rate, for example. And that's why people continue to lose more weight or one of the reasons. And so win-win, I'm, I'm excited to see where the data goes here. Um, and hopefully we'll, uh, we'll continue to see more research. I assume that we will, you know, it's definitely an active area of, of research. Okay. Moving on. This study, uh, actually was one of the, uh, you know, driving forces towards us actually writing the progressive loading article. We knew that we needed to come up with this article, but like just needed that final push. And this article was that push, at least for me. Um, the article is titled Impact of Different Mechanical and Metabolic Stimuli on the Temporal Dynamics of Muscle Strength Adaptation. Um, this is from um, Lambernides uh, from the London South Bank University. This was published in the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research ahead of print. So it's not out yet, but it's available ahead of print online. And uh, their goal was to investigate the time course between different adaptations in the body relating to strength. So basically, they took 40 studies comprising of 700 uh, plus total subjects and 57 different training groups and saw like, all right, we gave these people this training intervention. How quickly did they get stronger? And and this is interesting because when you look at uh, strength training data and data sets, most of the time they say, here's where the, here's how strong they were when they started. And then six weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks goes by and they just measure their strength at the end. They say, look, these, these people got stronger and it's an average strength increase. So all you see is like, okay, on average, these people got this much stronger, but you don't see individual level data where some people maybe didn't get that much stronger at all. Other people got way stronger and you don't see how fast that occurred. And I think if we had a better characterization of like how fast you can reasonably expect to get stronger, maybe that would fix some of these questions uh, or maybe that would answer some of these questions that we get about, you know, how quickly should I wait to the bar? How, what should my expectations be um, with respect to uh, getting stronger? Do, do we really get stronger day by day, week by week, month by month? Um, and so all of the studies that they included here had at least one intermediate sort of strength assessment in the study. So they all lasted at least six weeks and somewhere in the interim, they had at least one, uh, strength test where they kind of evaluated like, Hey, do these people get stronger? Most of them had multiple sort of strength assessments along the way. The average testing time interval was every, about every three weeks, um, and so, yeah, let's, let's figure out what they, what they found. Uh, just one brief note, interestingly, like in the uh, introduction, they talk about the overload principle and uh, they, they say, and I quote, in this way, training can be done at a more representative level of the subject's ability and goals, hence providing constantly appropriate stimuli to trigger muscle strength gains. Failing to make appropriate adjustments in training intensity and volume can lead to a phase of plateau not challenging enough and no improvement or may cause fatigue too challenging for improvement and even an increased risk of injury. And I, I sent this to Austin and I was like, I just, I just left that quote there. He goes, who's this? Sounds like us. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty, pretty interesting that they're, they talk about that as the overload principle rather than like 
constantly forcing an, an increase in weight lifted, reps completed, decrease in, in, in rest time or whatever in order to like force the adaptation. Rather, this seems like they're just trying to make sure that the training is done at a more appropriate level based on the, the individual's current level, uh, they say ability, but it could be current performance level, current fitness level, et cetera. Okay. So they're measuring, uh, muscle strength, um, multiple times throughout the study period. What did they find? Um, so again, this, all studies were lasted at least six weeks. They resistance trained at least two times per week and they measured muscular strength either with a one RM or a max volitional contraction. So basically usually they would do that on like a modified leg extension machine and like really just push hard against that sort of, uh, 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 pad and see like how much, force can you put into that pad, um, in a particular position, um, subject wise, there was just over 700, a quarter of them were women, three quarters of them were men, the age range from 18 to 88. Um, and half the studies, it was just dudes. And in 10% of the studies, it was just women. Um, half the studies lasted, uh, over 10 weeks. Um, most of the subjects here were not regularly trained or, uh, were relatively unexperienced and three studies used elite athletes. Okay, so what did they find? On average, the mean time point for where strength increase was recorded was 4.3 weeks. And the range uh, of strength inc- uh, for how long it took for strength to increase was 1 to 12 weeks. And this seemed to indicate to the authors that strength needs frequent monitoring in order to appropriately dose the load on the bar, which we agree with. Um, as far as the magnitude of progression, so how strong did they get? Uh, when the first strength increase was noted, the strength seemed to improve by about 16%. And then the second um, increase was about half, about 7.6%. This means like the initial strength increase uh, was significantly larger than the second increase. Um, and then they also saw that in studies that had relatively infrequent uh, sort of strength testing intervals, that they had longer periods of plateau meaning that the folks were not actually making strength gains um, because they did not assess what their strength was doing and that therefore could not correct the loading. Um, and so this actually brought to mind a, a lot of studies that I've read uh, with respect to strength training interventions. Most of the time they test their one arm at the beginning and then they like plot out the entire training. They're like, all right, week one, 65% for three sets of 10. Week two, 70%, three sets of 10, whatever. It goes on, goes on, goes on. Well, what if the person's one RM is changing? And we suspect that it is. It's like, well, maybe this loading is inappropriate. And we assume that the 1RM is going up over time. But what if it goes down one week? Then it was too much. And if it's too light, then we're not getting this sort of optimum rate of adaptation. Um, just pretty pretty interesting study. And so this, when I, after I read it, I go, we got to write this progressive overload article. Um, the only uh, other interesting finding here was that uh, in untrained individuals, there seemed to be... Um, an additional signal from studies that also used uh, some training protocols that caused muscle hypoxia. And so effectively, if you were a new trainee, um, they, they were suggesting that doing some higher rep work um, closer to failure, uh, plus or minus uh, either a superset or a blood flow restriction or whatever, uh, there was a few different protocols they used in the studies, this may actually increase strength um, in performance in a 1RM. And to me, that makes perfect sense because if you think about an untrained individual, not only are they not good at 1RM sort of uh, uh, specific skills, they're bad at generally all of them. They're just untrained. And so if you build this big base of physical development um, over the course of a training uh, period, you're likely to get better results uh, if you address all of the sort of deficiencies rather than just one. Um, Criticisms. This is not a perfect study. One you would want the a bunch of different studies using the same sort of interval for testing strength multiple times throughout, meaning you'd want all of the studies uh, to test strength like every week or every second week. That way you could get a more granular sort of uh, view of how quickly strength actually increased. But as, as it is now, the data we have says, oh, maybe every four weeks, does strength actually increase? Um, the other thing is they didn't use um, subjective sort of, uh, or, or objective measures of, uh, exertion, meaning like they just did a one, a no shit one RM, like just max out. So you're just, all right, 
taking them to <laughs> maximum sort of performance, but there wasn't like a bar velocity sort of reading or RPE. And so, yeah, that that's, that's a reason why you probably couldn't do it as frequently. Like imagine if I was like, all right, Austin, your next 12 week training cycle, you're going to max out every week. That's how we're going to figure out how quickly you get stronger just by maxing yeah. out. And it's like, yeah. we, we just have you do a single at 90% and see the bar velocity. And if it's going up, so you're getting faster, well, that means you're getting stronger. It's the same range of motion, it's the same movement pattern. And if you can move the, the weight faster, that suggests that you're getting stronger so we can add more load to kind of maintain that uh, sort of exertion level. Um, but yeah, I found this really interesting just because it is just widely cited and, 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 and said that, yeah, you should be getting stronger every week or every day or, you know, whatever. And it's like, man, it doesn't even look like that for untrained individuals. It looks like it's just over weeks. And so that's, that's kind of what I, I would uh, expect if you're, if you're, if you understand that the response to a given training program varies wildly between individuals. Some people get much stronger. Other people don't gain that much strength and, and you know, everybody else is in the middle. That's thing one. Thing two, your day-to-day performance varies. Some days it's higher. Some days it's lower. Some days it's average. Uh, and then the rate at which you get stronger also varies between individuals. So you have like three things going on at once. And it's like, man, how could we possibly predict how quickly yeah. you should add weight how, to the bar? How can you how can you plan this out precisely for like 12 weeks or 16 week cycle or something? And like, you know, plan pre-plan weights and sets and reps that you somehow know are going to be correct on any given day. You just simply can't. There's too many moving parts. There's too much noise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you would want to use some real-time feedback during each exercise or training session um, to tell you what weight you should use on the bar. So during warmups, kind of clues you in like, yeah, things are moving a little bit better this week. So I could probably add weight or things are moving the exact same as they did last week. I should probably stay the same or things are a little worse. I should probably do a little less and that's okay. Um, I think just the, the idea and I, it's funny, I went to dinner, um, with this individual a couple of days ago and they were like, if I don't add weight to the bar, but I do the same amount of reps, is am I still getting like a good, you know, training session in? And I'm like, yep, probably the same exact efficacy as the week before where you lifted more weight. But if you would have added weight and it would have been too hard, you would have gotten a smaller training effect net because the fatigue was so much higher. You might have knocked yourself back for a few sessions afterwards or precipitated an ache or a pain that needed to be worked around or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And and they were like, whoa. So, and I was like, the whole point is you got to, you need to match your current ability. And so having some room, um, and, and a plan for how to adapt is likely going to, uh, portend better outcomes. And so that we like RPE or repetitions in reserve. You can use either of those. You can use bar velocity. You could use the feeling scale. You can use heart rate for conditioning stuff. Right. So, um, I was just, I had a conditioning piece yesterday. It was, uh, on the bike. It was five. 5,000 meter in, uh, intervals with three minutes of rest. And it's supposed to be at a 10 K pace. So five, five Ks at a 10 K pace. And I was like, all right, I know what my 10 K pace is, but I also know what my heart rate should be if I'm, you know, at that level of exertion. And I'm like, well, I can maintain this pace, but my heart rate is a little higher than it should be. Mm-hmm. That suggests to me that this is actually too hard on this For given what you day. Want today. Yeah. So the training effect, yeah, I could have done it, but I shouldn't have. So mm-hmm. I actually backed it down back. Shout out to Jeff Goldblum, Jurassic Park. <laughs> <laughs> you can listen to our previous podcast for more info on progressive loading. But yeah, this article uh, was a good one. I wish we were open access so more people could read it. Um, but yeah. Or you can just read ours. Yeah. <laughs> or you can just read ours. Yeah, either way. Also linked in the description below. Okay. Last paper for the August 22 research review. Again, I'm here with Dr. Austin Baraki. This is Barbell Medicine Podcast Episode 190. All right, we're going to talk about creatine. This is your favorite supplement, and we're 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 back <laughs> literally, at it the again. Only, literally the only one I take. So. That's right. That's right. Uh, so this was published uh, actually next month. We we're somehow tra- transporting <laughs> into the future. This is from the September um, uh, edition of the uh, Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research. Uh, this is from Fazio et al. from the University of Colorado. And the paper is titled Efficacy of Alternative Forms of Creatine Supplementation on Improving Performance and Body Composition in Healthy Subjects, a Systematic Review. Now, this is near and dear to my heart because, you know, we make a supplement. 
We have a peri workout supplement that includes all of the things that we think can improve performance relative to workout, which is why you would take a supplement before and or after the workout. Uh, and creatine is in there. Creatine's got this very robust evidence base um, for working to improve performance across many different exercise modes, whether it be resistance training, high velocity strength training or power training, uh, cardiorespiratory endurance training, et cetera. Okay, how it works, it increases intracellular energy levels. Um, and if you want to get even nerdier than that, it increases phosphocreatine levels uh, in the level uh, at the level of the muscle. Uh, and so by doing that, your muscles have more energy to do more things like make force, create force. And so that tends to improve, for example, the amount of weight you can lift, the amount of reps you can complete, the uh, amount of time you can sustain a particular pace, all these sorts of things. So that's the major mechanism of action. And in fact, when you look at the difference between responders to creatine and non-responders to creatine, the biggest sort of difference is how much phosphocreatine did they have at, at, in the muscle prior to starting creatine supplementation? So folks who are non-responders tend to have a higher level of phosphocreatine at the level of the muscle, uh, and therefore supplementing doesn't really boost their creatine levels any higher. Uh, this is why about uh, a 10% higher rate of women, for example, are non-responders than men because they, on average, tend to have more phosphocreatine in, uh, at the level of the muscle. There are two other uh, less well-established and less well-promoted um, mechanisms of action of creatine. One is uh, creatine is an osmolite in that and that just is a fancy way of saying it brings water into the cell, muscle cell itself. And so a hydrated muscle cell is a anabolic muscle cell. And so to the extent that muscles need to have the appropriate level of hydration in order to grow and uh, engage in muscle protein synthesis, creatine can help in that regard. And also there seems to be some data that creatine supplementation increases satellite cell uh, recruitment, meaning that after you train uh, damaged muscle uh, fibers, um, tend to uh, release myokines and other sort of signals that uh, go to these satellite cells that then differentiate into um, myonuclei and other sort of uh, elements of the muscle cell and muscle fiber itself, thereby increasing muscle remodeling. Um, that is a 50,000 foot view of what happens after training. But yeah, creatine can help with that uh, to some degree. Uh, dosing wise, most of the time creatine is studied uh, at three to five grams per day every day or 0 0.05 grams per kilogram body weight per day. Uh, people will ask, do you need to load it? You can. It tends to increase muscle creatine levels faster uh, by a little bit, but also increases risk of gastrointestinal distress because it brings a lot of water into the small intestine that makes folks feel uncomfortable sometimes. Um, so you can just take three to five grams a day forever. You don't need to take a break and it doesn't matter when you take it, you take it whenever it does seem to be very, very safe. We have tons of safety data on it. Um, we talked about that in our last uh, Q and a podcast. Um, and so the most common form and the most well-studied form is creatine monohydrate. This is just creatine, which is, uh, some amino acids that are bound to a water molecule. There are many other types of creatine. Um, and that's what this paper looked at. Like, Hey, you got these other forms of creatine. Are they any good? Um, and so this is a systematic review. They basically looked at all these different types of creatine, including creatine citrate, creatine pyruvate, creatine ethyl ester, creatine nitrate, creatine malate, magnesium creatine uh, chelate. Basically, they take creatine and they bind it to another molecule. Now, the chemist in you, Austin, you look at these things and you're like, why'd you do this? <laughs> I mean, you could go through and you could like assess the polarity and solubility and all these other sort of factors of each one of these things. But what you would really want to know as a you know, lifter and as a clinician is like, well, do the, do these things work at least as well as creatine? Yeah. as creatine monohydrate. Do they cause an increase in performance on any measurable level? And if so, how does that compare to creatine monohydrate? Because we already have that. And these are all, all of them much more expensive than creatine monohydrate. So if you're buying a supplement, for example, that has creatine citrate, creatine pyruvate, creatine nitrate in it, you're paying more for that fancier version and like, do, does it even work any better? Does it even work the same? Okay. Overall, all of the creatine supplements were well tolerated. That's good. No adverse events were reported. That again goes back to the safety of creatines. Pretty dang safe, but none of these different types of creatine did better when compared to creatine monohydrate. None of them none of them. And there's all sorts of different outcomes studied. So whether it's uh, reduced bloating, reduced gastrointestinal distress, actual improvements in anaerobic or aerobic performance, none of them outperform creatine monohydrate. Most of them 
did not perform even better than placebo. And the one that I really want to bring up is creatine ethyl ester. Now this thing is, this is the dumbest supplement that I've <laughs> related to creatine because I was it, does, say, it can't be the dumbest overall. But. Well, no, that's like, <laughs> that's like collagen protein or something or like, <laughs> or bone marrow protein or whatever, you know, yeah. it's like, what do you need? Bone broth. Uh, creatine the ethyl ester does not get absorbed into the muscles. It, once you take it, it cyclizes to creatinine, which is a muscle breakdown product that your kidneys, uh, uh, filter and, 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 you know, is also uh, present in the level of the blood. And when it gets high, it suggests your kidneys aren't working so well. Uh, but it doesn't even make it into the level of the muscle. I actually wrote a piece, um, evaluating, uh, based on a data set from another one of our physician friends, Dr. Hunt. Uh, he collected data on people taking creatine ethyl ester versus creatine monohydrate and like, what were their serum creatinine levels in people on creatine ethyl ester, their creatinine levels were so high that you might you might put them on dialysis just by seeing it. You're like, why is your serum creatinine eight times the normal limit? Crazy. So that might be the dumbest form of creatine. It doesn't even get into the level of the muscle. Uh, again, they cost more and they, they don't seem to work any better than creatine monohydrate. And what's more is they don't seem to work better than placebo. So Yikes. the take home, well, right. Yeah. The take home for me is that if you're going to take creatine, take creatine monohydrate. It's already cheap anyway. So you don't need to take, you know, a different one and because ex- you shouldn't expect a better effect. The only time I'd be searching for like another creatine supplement is if you couldn't tolerate creatine monohydrate for whatever reason. But even then I'm like, man, maybe creatine HCL, maybe, but we don't have data on that showing that it works just as well. And also maybe just, this isn't important enough. Like <laughs> how yeah, badly exactly. do you really need to be taking this if you can't tolerate it? Like, yeah, it's, a thing. it's not, it's not life-saving. Uh, it may not even be having as much of an impact as you're making it out to be like in your, in your brain, if you're, if you're willing to go, go to these lengths. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think the people that I would like really try to identify another like agent is if you have like muscular dystrophy or, or, or something similar to that, where they're actually using creatine therapeutically for those mm-hmm. individuals. Yeah. But if you're just talking about like, yeah, maybe I'm a little stronger or whatever. I'm like, just train better. Yeah. <laughs> it's just it's not a, not a big enough deal. Um, but yeah, yeah you're probably would, not sleeping enough or something like right. more, more significant. Yeah. Right. I would take creatine monohydrate. I would make sure that it's, uh, that the manufacturer is adhering to, uh, good manufacturing processes. So there's a CGMP, uh, mark on the label and it's third party tested either through USP, NSF, informed consent. That's the one that we use, um, just to make sure it's not contaminated because when, <laughs> This has actually been studied. Uh, they took 600 uh, plus non-hormonal dietary supplements, including creatine, from 13 different countries and 215 different suppliers, and 15% of them were contaminated with hormones or pro-hormones. So o- almost 90% of them had anabolic steroids in them. And so when people are like, I like this particular type of creatine, and you look at it, there's no third-party testing, no CGMP, you're like, I mean, it's probably just Anavar. Like it's probably, <laughs> that's probably why you liked it, you know? Um, and yeah, uh, since 2002, 20% of legally sold sports nutrition products contained potent synthetic oral anabolic androgenic steroids. It's like, I mean, if you're in a tested sport, can you imagine you get tested and they, and you're like, Hey man, you tested positive for this, that, and the other. And you're like, it's just creatine. And they're like, Oh, it's Celtech. They're like, we haven't heard that before. Yeah, that's like the most common defense that everybody rolls their eyes on at on the internet. So even if it were true, you'd be getting no sympathy from uh, <laughs> from Instagram. Yeah. yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, it's it's just that your cell tech. Yeah, I take creatine uh, in our supplement, our Perry supplement, and I don't think about it otherwise. Like, and if somebody doesn't want to take it, they can live a full and complete life. But I wouldn't take any of the other types of creatine. Yeah. Anything else you want to add to this, Doctor B? I don't have anything to add to this. Uh, I think we've got another follow-up podcast brewing that uh, we'll record uh, this week and, and release next week to the to the people. And so there's more to come. All right. I love it. All right. This has been episode 190 of the Barbell Medicine Podcast. This is our August 2022 research review. Uh, before you guys go anywhere, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. And we'll catch you here next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. See you.